I'm journalist Carolyn Osorio, and I invite you to join me and my co-host, Brandon Morgan, on our podcast, Criminal Mischief. From law enforcement officers seeking justice to victims' families seeking answers, every week there's a new case and a new victim whose story deserves to be told. New episodes of Criminal Mischief drop every Tuesday. In 1957, the body of a young boy was found discarded in the woods in Philadelphia inside a cardboard box. After 65 years of investigation, the real name of the boy in the box has finally been identified. But this murder mystery, it's far from solved. Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. Today I get the feeling, sometimes like with these more brutal ones, it always feels like a little less harsh when they happened a longer time ago. 65 years does feel like a longer time, so that always eases it somehow. But still, dude, the title of this episode is just like that. I don't know. I don't, I don't like it. Look, uh, welcome to the show. I'm Simon. I'm your host here. What happens here, if you're new, is one of my writers. In this case, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. has written me a script. I've never read it before. We're going to explore it together, so let's jump in. Today, we're going to be looking at one of the oldest and most famous unsolved crimes in Philadelphia. For the past 65 years, there had been virtually no evidence to go off. But as of December 2022, advances in DNA testing have finally provided a name to America's unknown child, better known as the boy in the box. The Discovery Fox Chase was a neighborhood in Philadelphia. The woods off Susquehanna Road were a popular area for two main reasons. First, it was often used as a dumping ground for trash because apparently common decency hadn't been invented yet. Oh my god, it still hasn't. Sometimes you'll just be like in the nature or whatever and someone's just like dumped a mattress at the side of the road because they don't want to pay the like tiny amount of money that when you go to the dump to like dump something legally. And there's these this huge fines for this and stuff, but still, because you're just so unlikely to get caught and it just ruins, it's rare, it's rare, but it still ruins the nature for everybody. The area was also used as a training ground for would-be hunters. People would litter the woods with traps to catch, catch muskrats, a semi-aquatic rodent that can be up to four pounds and a little over a foot long. These animals are allegedly tasty, but given their small size, how little their pelts sell for, and how much a muskrat trap costs, it seems to me like it would make more sense just to buy food. I'm not opposed to hunting, so long as you use whatever you kill, but laying out some traps, then checking days later to see if you caught anything, doesn't seem to me like it would include a lot of skill, so this particular endeavor just seems a bit pointless. Yeah, I guess so. Unless you're, like, making the trap yourself. <laughs> It does. It's like I use mouse traps to catch a little mouse that that live in my attic, and it's not. It's I don't get any joy from that. It's like oh great, dead mice. Um, I, well, I'm not eating them obviously, but it's still like this is just pointless. It's just someone created a trap. The mice are stupid. They fall for the trap, and that's it. And don't tell me about those humane traps. People are like, oh, you just set them free in the forest. It's like yo, this is a house I go to like every few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> the humane trap version would be the mouse starves to death, which is uh, worse than a quick... <laughs> anyway, it was a cold night in February 1957 when one of these wannabe hunters went out to check his traps and stumbled upon a cardboard box. The box was by right by a pair of trees not far off of the road. When the hunter looked inside the box and saw the body of a deceased child, he immediately knew what he had to do. Absolutely nothing. What? Okay. <laughs> if that was me, it'd be like, oh my god, I'd spend about a few seconds getting over the horror i'd back away from it and immediately call the police 
I'd back away from it, like, so I couldn't see it anymore. I'd just be like, so it's off in the distance, because I don't want to think about that or look at that. I want the police to do their job and me not have to think about that anymore. After all, if he led police to the location, they may have confiscated his illegal hunting traps. Um, look. Look, 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 look. Get your priorities straight, okay? The police, one, if you're worried about them, like, punishing you for the hunting traps or whatever, don't be. Just take the hunting traps away and the police will be like, what were you doing? And it's like, oh, I was doing illegal hunting. They don't give a sh There's a dead kid in a box. They're pro- The police wouldn't give a sh in a situation like that. It's like if they find drugs, if someone's a witness to a murder and they happen to have a little bit of like coke on them or whatever, the police are going to be like, well, thanks for staying around as a witness. And as a reward, we're not going to arrest you for cocaine possession or whatever, right? Surely. Surely that's what must happen because you want to encourage people who are doing something a little bit naughty to report something that's a lot naughty. That makes sense, right? Please tell me that's how police actually operate. A few days later, a student from LaSalle College stumbled upon the box. In one version of events, he was passing the road and saw a rabbit hop into the underbrush. Knowing about how common it was for people to place animal traps in the area, he went to check on the rabbit to make sure it was okay. Dude, it's a wild rabbit. <laughs> okay, it's not someone's dog. The various reports are unclear, but it's likely that this story was a lie that he told himself to make him seem like a sweet and caring guy rather than a disgusting pervert. Oh, okay. The more salacious version of events is that the student was on his way to go spy on nearby residents of the Sisters of Good Shepherd, a Catholic residence for wayward girls. The 1950s term for single mums. He's a peeping Tom. That no, no, I was looking for a rabbit. There was a rabbit and I just had to help it. I definitely wasn't going to perv on the mums. Melf! Melf! <laughs> Oh, God, not appropriate. Regardless of why the student was in the area, he saw the cardboard box and the head sticking out of it, but he too chose not to contact the police. What is wrong with people in the past? He had at least had a better reason. Since this was a known dumping ground, he thought the box just contained a discarded doll and he didn't bother to investigate further. Okay, fair enough. Never mind. In the next day, news broke of the disappearance of a four-year-old girl named Mary Jane Barker. Fearing what he had originally thought was a doll may have been the missing girl, the student went back to the woods to check on the box. Bro, what are you doing? Just phone the police and be like, this is gonna sound crazy and it's probably just a doll. But I was out saving rabbits and I saw a doll and then I saw her on the news. I'm just telling you police because this is my civic duty. Do what you will with it. I am now absolved. That's what you do. Don't go and poke around in the box. <laughs> I'll be like, oh no. Again, I want the police to do their job. This is not my job. I make YouTube videos. Inside the box was not the missing girl, but instead it was the body of a young boy. Now he knew that there was a dead body, he immediately contacted the police. Initial investigation. Because of how cold it had been, it was difficult to determine how long the body had been in the woods. It's known that it was at least a couple of days based on the two people finding it, but from the state of the body, it could have also been anywhere from a couple of days to a couple of months. Initial findings were that the boy had been between four and six years old, but his age was difficult to determine because of the condition of the body and because he seemed extremely malnourished. The boy was three and a half feet tall, but weighed only 30 pounds, significantly underweight for his height. There were also indications that he had been severely beaten and blunt force trauma was ultimately ruled to be the most likely cause of death i don't i don't get it it's four to six i know i feel like i'm a broken record whenever there are kids in this but it's like stop what i get upset at my kids all the time i'll be like what are you doing what are you doing like this morning my kid was just like 
I just go away for a second. And the next thing I know, he's climbed up on the, to the dining room table and he's opening and shutting my laptop like this. And I'm like, oh no, stop. Oh God, please. But like anything beyond just a moment of verbal anger and then feeling bad at myself is like, I, don't, I do not comprehend how it can go beyond anything that. It's a kid. It's a kid. F*** off. In contrast to the malnourishments and beatings, it seemed like he may have been generally well cared for. The boy had several scars which would have made the body identifiable. However, many of these appeared to be surgical scars. Three scars on his chest, groin area, and ankle all seemed to be the result of professional medical care. Well, that would make it seem like it would be very easy to identify who this was, because that's a lot of surgeries for a kid. Of course, it's possible that any medical procedures occurred when the boy was even younger, as there's no telling how long he was in whatever situation ultimately led to his death. There weren't any marks indicating that he had received any vaccinations, which meant that he was not in public school. If he was indeed only four years old, then he would have been too young for school and uh, wouldn't have needed to get his shots for a few more months, but it was still noteworthy. Well, they definitely vaccinated people later in the past none of my kids are four and they've like been shot up with all sorts of vaccinations i discovered we discovered me and my wife and why by by we i mean she did and then she told me about it this is a vaccine for um chicken box now and one of our friends his kid got it terribly like their face was like super red so many scabs it was horrific i remember having chicken box as a kid and it being like miserable but my face wasn't like just entirely red with pox and uh then we just like I, maybe it was a day later or she just found out there was a vaccine you have to pay for it it wasn't on the health service but i was like yeah for sure so i took her in got her vaccinated don't have to worry about that anymore and as soon as the other kids uh, i think he has to be stopped breastfeeding or whatever before he can have that and then we're like we're right on that i'm like is this like 100 quid 150 uh, so like 200 bucks or something i think it's like 150 200 bucks something like that and I'm like, that is a bargain. Because also, the kid's off school for like three weeks with chicken pox, which means me and my wife will have to somehow like take care of them. There's two of them now, so that probably means me taking time off work. And my time's quite valuable. So it's like, okay, get that, get that vaccination. I'm like, get them all. Even though I do agree that children are not horses. Um... <laughs> The autopsy showed that the boy's feet and one of his palms were wrinkled. This meant that they had been submerged in water immediately after or immediately before he died. His hair and nails were also freshly cut. The hair was so freshly cut that pieces of it could still be found on the body and on the blanket in which he had been wrapped. Unsurprisingly, it was a very poorly done haircut, almost certainly having been hastily performed on the boy after he died. This unusual detail led one investigator to consider the possibility that the boy was being raised as a girl and that the haircut was an attempt to hide this fact from the police. It's a bit of a stretch, isn't it? Why like how many how many children up there out there are being raised as a different gender? It's a vanishingly small number, surely. In addition to the other images of the boy that were circulated, a police sketch of the boy with long hair and dressed as a girl was also distributed in case this investigator's hunch was correct. As you'll soon see, the police all were taking this case extremely seriously. Excellent, because there is a kid who was found in a box. <laughs> the police took it seriously. Yes, and? <laughs> One of the first orders of business was for police to take a footprint from the child in the hopes that they could match it to a hospital record. Babies aren't fingerprinted at birth because there are, they are generally uncooperative little shits, but getting a footprint from a newborn is pretty easy. Although police were optimistic that they would find a match, and unfortunately didn't yield any results. Taking footprints at birth didn't become nationwide standard until the 1960s, with the boy likely having been born between 1951 and 1953, so he may have just been he may have just missed out. Um, wait, is that still what goes on to Americans? Do you 
you take footprints at birth? Because the for like identify that's weird. That definitely doesn't happen here. Beyond the condition of the boy himself, police searched the area for any evidence they could find. At least 270 police academy recruits were used to repeatedly comb the area, but only three pieces of potential evidence were found. The first two were a child's scarf and a man's white handkerchief with the letter G in the corner, but neither of these clues went anywhere. The other piece of evidence was a man's blue corduroy hat with a leather strap on it. Then, of course, there was the box itself and the blanket the child had been wrapped in. The box still had a label on it, indicating that it had originally contained a bassinet sold from a local J.C. Penny. Unfortunately, they weren't able to lift any fingerprints off of the box, but at least there was the chance that it wasn't a complete dead end. The J.C. Penny from which the bassinet box originated was able to tell the police that it was one of only 12 of that specific model that had been sold. Unfortunately, there were no records of who had purchased the bassinets. That's not terribly surprising. Yeah, why would there be a record? Like, people weren't using credit cards back in the day, just paying for crash and all, like, writing down, Mr. Jones bought a bassinet. Be like, no, I just want to go. Just let me pay and leave. The first modern credit card had only been created in 1950. Oh, okay, there were credit cards. Never mind. And Visa and MasterCard didn't exist yet. Stores also didn't really begin collecting and selling customer data until the 1980s. Oh, God, are they selling customer data? Isn't that illegal? Isn't that what, like, that GDPR, I mean, at least in Europe, thing was? Isn't that what it is, like, to stop? companies being like oh yeah we collected all this information on site we're gonna sell it to someone else you know what lately i posted this on my twitter whenever i go to like bbc to read the news all i'm getting advertised is an f-35 as in the the lockheed martin f-35 as in like a fighter jet it's like it, it says like something it says it in check but it's like the best defense is a good offense and it's advertising and it's like the uh, the new f-35 and i'm like what are you talking about why is this being advertised to me why does this advert exist <laughs> who is putting out why is boeing or lockheed boeing or whoever it is who makes the f-35 why are they putting out adverts to consumers in any way i get why i could be being retargeted for it because you know i make a channel i'm sure i've covered and made videos about this and i look up a lot of defense stuff but I'm not like the target market for this, really. The target market is not YouTubers, it's countries. <laughs> it's also like $80 million. So it's a little out of my budget for, you know, <laughs> it's a plane. It probably costs like $20,000 a second to keep it in the air. Uh, so, of course, all 12 purchases could have been made with cash, with no real record of sale other than the inventory numbers. Uh, once details of the bassinet were made public, eight of the 12 owners came forward to either show that they still had the box or to inform the police that they'd long since thrown it out. As for the blanket, it was a cheap imitation blanket designed to look like it was made by Native Americans. Authorities took it to the Philadelphia Textile Institute, who were able to narrow it down to having made in a factory in either North Carolina or in Quebec. This didn't prove terribly helpful as the factories manufactured and sold these cheap blankets by the thousands. Yeah, it's like, okay, great, you know where the blanket was made. How is that useful? Why? I mean, you just chase down every lead. Is that really a lead? I mean, the blanket's a lead, but where it's made? Oh, I'm sorry, I was assuming it came, for, came with the bassinet. But okay, it could have been. Okay, so that, I, I understand. I'm sorry, I'm being a smooth brain. My bad. So that just brings us back to the hat. The hat had a label inside that read Eagle Hat and Cap Company. This was a small local store in Philadelphia, and the owner immediately recognized that. She had made about a dozen identical hats at some point the previous year, but they did not include a leather strap. The original buyer had come back to have the strap custom added to his hat. 
She remembered the owner as being a blonde man in his late 20s and said that he resembled the picture of the boy in the box. But once again, there was no name or address associated with the sale, only the store owner's memory. Despite their best efforts, police were unable to track down who this hat had once belonged to. So could this be the father then? Because he resembles the, the, the victim? With the leads from the hard evidence exhausted, all that was left to do was rely on help from the public. In a move that was deemed rather unusual, hundreds of thousands of flyers were made using photos of the boy as he had been found. Normally, authorities would prefer to use a photo from when the victim was alive, or at least a sketch when that wasn't possible, but they opted for images of the bruised and deceased child instead. These flyers were sent to other police stations, grocery stores, and insurance agents to be posted. Police even had the Philadelphia Gas Works and Philadelphia Electric Company include the flyers in everyone's bills. Wow, the police are doing a cracking job on this. Because there's a dead kid. Good, I like it. Carry on. The boy remains in the morgue while people from as many as 10 different states tried to identify the child. Multiple people attempted to claim the body, but all turned out to be false leads. The most promising identification came from a marine who had just returned from overseas. He believed that the child may have been one of his 17 brothers and sisters. Oh, dude. And viewing the body confirmed the suspicion in his own mind. Most of the family had moved out west just after he was deployed, but two of his younger siblings stayed behind in Philadelphia with an older brother. It was the closest anyone came to claiming the boy, but authorities eventually found the Marine's brother alive and well in California. Nothing was yielding any results. The boy didn't match any descriptions of missing children, the physical evidence had led nowhere, and nobody was able to successfully identify the body. Police even tried dressing the body to make him look more lifelike and taking pictures to circulate on new flyers. They chased down thousands of leads, trying to figure out absolutely anything they could about the unidentified boy, but after months of intense investigation, they knew no more than when they first began. One medical examiner, Brennington Bristow, went so far as to make a mask of the boy's face that he would carry in his briefcase as he pursued the case until his death 36 years later. I'm not sure how the mask would be any more useful than the photos, nor do I think I would choose to keep talking to somebody who pulled out such a creepy mask, but Remington desperately wanted answers. He wasn't alone, and over the years, countless people would try their hand at investigating the case on their own. In 1990, the Vidoc Society would be founded in Philadelphia. It's an invite-only organization full of current and former lawyers FBI agents, homicide detectives, scientists, and forensic experts that specialize in investigating cold cases. These guys have come up before, right? I've definitely heard of them. They solved their first case in 1991, one year after being founded, and they have been heavily involved in helping Philadelphia, Philadelphia police search for answers in the case of the boy in the box. I think this is such a cool idea, like all these retired dudes who have built up a career's worth of doing it, uh, uh, you know, investigating this sort of thing, and they retire and when you're in a job it's always like you got to do this you got to do that crack on with this crack on with that and i feel this as well and sometimes i'll just take a day and i'm just like cool i'm just going to work on something different and the creativeness that comes up and just from taking that slower pace stuff is amazing and i think when you know people like this when they're not under the pressure of like get the thing done solve this next case they're just like cool i'm just gonna like spend my time looking into this and trying to figure it out after a career's worth of experience is just it's such an incredible idea it's such a great thing to do and obviously yields results but apparently not in this case however those answers wouldn't come in 1957. five months after the boy was found and after an ex- after exhausting every lead it was finally time to give them a proper burial the detectives working the case took it extremely personally and were thought to have seen the boy as their own collective adopted son he was buried in potter's field the city's burial place for unclaimed bodies 
Although there were hundreds of bodies buried in the field, seeing as they were unclaimed, often unknown, and being buried using public funds, there wasn't a single headstone. The detectives wanted better for this poor kid, so they personally paid for him to have the only headstone in Potter's Field. The inscription read, Heavenly Father, bless this unknown boy. February the 25th, 1957. The Search for DNA Evidence Even after the burial, investigators continued to pursue the case relentlessly. We've already mentioned Remington and his weird mask, and we'll get to some theories later, but for those first few decades, all they had to go on was tips from the public and good old-fashioned police work. Thousands of leads were followed, some better than others, but there didn't seem to be any answers to be found. Then dna testing came along this technology obviously didn't exist in 1957 so authorities hadn't bothered to preserve any samples from the boy in 1998 the decision was made to exhume the body in the hopes of extracting a dna sample that could be compared to any current and future dna profiles that they would collect fortunately detectives that originally worked the case had been so deeply moved by the tragedy that they knew exactly where to dig in the wasteland of otherwise unmarked graves can't they do you have to dig up the whole thing? Can't you just use like a probe or something? Just get something and be like, drill in through the soil, through the coffin, and then just grab a little tissue sample. Do you have to dig up the whole body and stuff? That's so grim. Of course, it had been 41 years since his death. Given the state of decomposition, extracting a usable DNA sample would not be a trivial task. Authorities attempted to obtain DNA from tissue samples, but after a year, they finally admitted that their efforts had been unsuccessful. They would try again in 2000, this time attempting to get... When was this first? Uh, 1998? Okay, and then they tried two years later in 2000, um, tried to get DNA from a tooth their efforts again proving futile so they tried sending the tooth to a private lab in 2001 this time the lab was able to build a mitochondrial dna profile it's so fast dna is so fascinating it's like yeah there's different like levels of like decomposition and stuff because obviously you could get the dna it's not that old but it's just like the amount of skill can be it just requires uh like an outside lab or someone with more skill doing that or a tooth rather than just some i guess some old flesh or something fascinating after the boy was exhumed in 1998 so that all those samples could be taken for testing, he was reburied in Ivy Hill Cemetery in Cedarburg, Philadelphia. This time, it was in a real cemetery, and he had been given a new tombstone that read, America's Unknown Child. That year, his story was also featured on an episode of America's Most Wanted. The real break finally came when the boy was exhumed again in 2019 to take more samples. DNA testing had already advanced significantly, and it was believed that they could build a more complete genetic profile. Why don't you just take you you'd be like okay so you know this technology exists why not be like okay we're just going to take a big you know we're going to take a slice of bone we're going to take a tooth uh and we're just going to put it in a freezer why not do that uh, you you need to read under I, I don't know well i kind of see it like look when we're dead we're all just like flesh and like meat but it does feel a little bit intense do we have to dig up the kid three times <laughs> While they succeeded and finally had the piece they needed to give the boy his identity back, the final chain of events that would make this possible had already occurred two years prior. In 2017, a second cousin, once removed from the boy, uh, was trying to figure out what to buy his girlfriend for Christmas. He decided to get her a home DNA kit from an ancestry website, uh, but the couple broke up before Christmas. Not wanting the kit to go to waste, the young man wound up using it on himself. By itself, this would not have been enough. If you've watched our episode on the Golden State Killer, you already know that the big ancestry websites do everything in their power to avoid playing ball with the police. This makes them sound bad, but it would be really bad for business for them. I understand why they don't share. I think, as like a regular ass law abiding citizen, it would be useful, but I also totally get why they don't. And I think it's 
oh god, it's such a... Well, I, I think I sp probably spent like 25 minutes on a previous episode on the Golden State Killer expounding on this. So I'm just not going to, and we're just going to move on. But obviously it's complicated. But what he's going to do is he's going to upload it to one of these other ones where they do some other stuff, and then they do share it with the police. Like, it's just accepted luckily the man became really interested in filling out his family tree so he wound up uploading the information to ged match ged match is a free website that allows users from different genealogy websites to find one another and it is also a company that will give the police absolutely anything that they ask for in theory there have been some restrictions in place on what authorities can access but in practice it hasn't really played out this way anyway the man found tracing his ancestry back to italy fascinating but he also thought that was going to be the end of it and that's when the police came calling. Okay, maybe not the police, but a forensic genealogist and a cold case liaison called him. She informed the man that his DNA was a match to a cold case and that she needed more DNA samples from his family in order to confirm the identity of the victim. The man's mother agreed to provide her DNA, and things quickly began moving forward. Authorities were able to identify the boy in the box's birth mother. They pulled the family birth records and found three birth certificates, two for the boy's siblings and one for a name they hadn't seen anywhere else. Additional genetic testing was done to confirm that the name of the father listed on the birth certificate was in fact the boy's real father. In November of 2022, Philadelphia police announced that they had discovered the boy in the box's real identity. On December the 8th, they held a press conference in which they revealed his name. Joseph Augustus Zarelli, born January the 13th, 1953. Because this was an open investigation, the police did not reveal a whole lot of other information. They declined to give the names of the parents, as Joseph had at least one sibling that's still alive, and they wanted to avoid any undue, undue harassment of those individuals. Excellent. God, the police are so good today. This is, I, I, I did another episode like a couple of days ago where it was just like, oh my God, police incompetence followed by police incompetence. And this is so nice to see like really thorough, thoughtful, caring police work. I love it. Unfortunately, the internet's going to internet. With a little information available and Zarelli viewed as an uncommon surname, people immediately got to work trying to identify and dox anyone they thought might have been one of Joseph's relatives. Wow. Do you have to be such pieces of sh What do they have to do with it? Why would you do this? Why? Why is the motivation? There's plenty of shitty people out there that you could do this to if you want to like research and like write where they live. There's loads of pieces of shit. Why, why, why do it for some... The relatives is the one who got murdered decades ago. Why? It should hopefully go without saying, but please don't do that. Despite being cagey about releasing any other information, police felt it was important to release Joseph's name. Even if, can't you just say like, uh, someone Zed, like, you know, they do for minors in some countries, where they just say like, Mr. P, or like, Child D, this sort of thing. Even if the picture circulated at the time hadn't helped, they thought that perhaps someone who was alive in the area at the time may have remembered the name and could provide information. It may have been 65 years ago, but any neighbors that were in their teens or 20s could potentially be alive and may have information. It might seem unlikely that someone would recognize the name but hadn't recognized seeing the boy, but it was worth a shot at least. Police alluded to the fact that had this technology existed 20 years ago, they may have been able to question or charge the person responsible for the murder. This, yeah, but 19, when was it? 1950? Oh, he was born 53, so let's say, what, he was four? So 57, let's say the youngest possible age for the parent could have been let's just be realistic or like reasonable and say 20 so that would make them 37 1937 as a birth date so they they could still be alive but they'd be very very old 
This potentially indicates that they believe that one of the parents or both could now be deceased and that they could be responsible. That's just speculation based on the wording of the press conference, but the parents would also be the first suspects in a case like this. But that brings us to the most important part. Only half of the mystery has been solved. Joseph now has a name, but his killer has remained unidentified for the better part of a century. It's really hard to investigate a murder without knowing the identity of the victim, but now that they have identified him, authorities hope that they can follow up on or corroborate some of the theories that have come to light over the years. Theories First, we'll quickly mention a couple of theories that gained a lot of attention but have since been debunked. One was that Joseph was the son of a pair of carnival workers. The carnival workers, Kenneth and Irene Dudley, had been arrested in 1961 because they had a nasty habit of dumping the bodies of their dead children wherever the carnival happened to take them. Well, they seem like very, very good potential options for, uh, well, criminals here. The Dudleys had 10 children, six of whom had died of malnutrition and neglect. The children had been wrapped in blankets and dumped in various locations across multiple states, including two that were thrown into lakes. It's good that this couple were arrested, but after a thorough examination, it was determined that Joseph was not one of the children. Oh my god, I hope they went to prison for a long time anyway. The next theory, uh, which is most recent, began taking shape in 2013. This one is only partially debunked. The lead originally came from a Philadelphia man who said that his family once rented a place to a man that sold his son. Two writers, Hoffman and Romano, took an interest in this lead. They presented it to both the Philadelphia Police and the Vidocq Society in 2013. Hoffman and Romano believed that they had identified the family of the man who allegedly sold his son, and they were able to obtain a DNA sample in 2014 that was sent to the Philadelphia Police. The police said they would need to look into it before conducting more DNA tests, and for years, that was the last that anyone heard. The radio silence was deemed suspicious and seemed to give the story more credibility. But in 2017, authorities confirmed that they had compared the DNA samples and they were not a match. This confirmed that the writers had not identified the family of the man who sold his son, but it doesn't mean that the original story never happened. It's odd that a Philadelphia re residence would have sat on that potential lead for 55 years without telling anyone, and even odder that someone who rented a room would inform the owner that they were just there to sell their child, but I guess it's not out of the realm of possibility. It's not out of the realm of possibility, but it does seem bloody unlikely, doesn't it? <laughs> what are you doing in town? Oh, I'm just here to sell my children. <laughs> Good day to you, sir. I'd be much more dismissive of the entire story were it not for one of the other theories. Oh, okay. Okay, so yeah, I just dismissed it because I think it's a bit silly. Um, but maybe there's uh, more to this. Let's find out. The final debunked theory, and the first major theory to catch the public's attention, came from the medical examiner, Remington, that we mentioned before. There was a foster home about a mile and a half from where the body was dumped that was an early lead for investigators. The home was owned by Arthur and Catherine Nicoletti, who lived there with Anne, Anna Marie Nagel, Catherine's daughter from a previous marriage, and anywhere from between 5 to 25 foster children. At the time Joseph's body was discovered, there were eight children living at the foster home. The initial investigation showed that all eight of those children, and in fact all the children that had passed through the foster home, were accounted for. But Remington didn't want to let it go. Even though the police had closed their investigation into the foster home, Remington became fixated on it. His investigation made little progress, so in 1960 he enlisted the aid of a New Jersey psychic to help him find the truth. He's a medical examiner. I, I always want to believe that like people who are men of science or women of science are also like less likely to believe all the hokum sh**. But it's not always true, is it? I mean, this guy's like, he went to medical school and stuff. He's a scientist, basically. 
And he's like, yeah, let's just try the psyche. I mean, what have we got to lose? <laughs> I mean, nothing, but I mean, money. <laughs> They're not doing it for free. And also you get on wrong tracks instead of something doing something useful with your time. The psychic claimed that she could identify a person by holding a metal that was connected to them. So Remington brought her a couple of staples from the box that the boy had been found in. The psychic described a large house with a wooden railing and a log cabin on the property. Remington searched all over Philadelphia for such a house, but see, this is it. He's just wasting his time doing this. But the only one he found that matched the description was the same foster house that he had been investigating. Um... Yeah, so did the psychic know about this? Yeah, this was all in the press and stuff, right? This was a big lead for investigators. So the psychic's just doing that thing that all psychics do, where they just cheat, basically. Now you can call your own personal psychic anytime, 24 hours a day. He brought the psychic to the location or where Joseph's body had been found, and she led him directly to the foster home. This impressive bit of clairvoyance convinced Remington that she was the real deal, especially because she claimed to have never been to Philadelphia before, and psychics would never lie to make themselves more credible, would they? Ah, <laughs> oh, they would, though. They would. That's what they do. Despite living in the Northeast, I had been completely unaware of this up until the first time I drove to Philadelphia. So let me... I don't know where Philadelphia is. Philadelphia in the Northeast? So let me know... Let me help anyone unfamiliar with the area with a little geography. Thank you. I had never actually known where Pennsylvania, the city, was, but you could take a bridge directly from Philadelphia to New Jersey. I know where New Jersey is. That's like down a little bit south from New York, right? It's on the coast. It's where that TV show Jersey Shore happens. I've never seen it, but I've seen the memes. Even if the psychic really had never been there before, which seems unlikely because it's hard to imagine anyone that would add, wouldn't actively try to escape life in New Jersey. <laughs> Steady on, Kevin. She undoubtedly oh, would have at least researched the case to make sure that she could tell Remington what she wanted to what he wanted to hear. But with this new otherworldly evidence on his side, Remington was sure that the foster home was involved in some way. His leading theory was that Joseph was the illegitimate child of Anna Marie, who had died accidentally, and that they discarded the body to prevent her from being outed as a wayward girl. When the Nicolettis got out of foster care business and sold the house, Remington went to their estate sale. There he saw, oh my god, this dude is like... <laughs> Chill, dude. Just relax. Why are you so into this? There he saw a bassinet that I, I don't know. I mean, ah, sir, I'm, I'm biased because I'm like, if he hadn't done the whole psychic thing and like was just on this side quest as part of a psychic thing, I'd be a lot more like, cool, good on you for being so dedicated to finding out who, this, who killed this boy. But now I'm just like, oh, I've been led down such a path. Although maybe it will accidentally lead him somewhere. Let's find out. There he saw a bassinet that looked like it matched the one sold by J.C. Penny, as well as blankets that matched the ones wrapped around Joseph. His suspicions only intensified years later when Catherine passed away, and Arthur took Anna Marie, his stepdaughter, as his new wife. Oh my god, you're up to some, like, Woody, um, Woody Allen shit right there. <laughs> Dude. This, combined with Arthur's refusal to take a lie detector test, convinced Remington that he was onto something. He passed away in 1993 before learning the truth. In 1998, the new lead detective on the case, Tom Augustine, visited Arthur and Anna Marie to investigate the theory. Though Anna Marie had given birth four times, all of the children had died. Three Owa stillborn and the fourth died in a freak accident. He had been electrocuted to death by one of those coin-operated carousel rides that you see outside of stores. Oh my god, what? <laughs> My kid loves riding on those. I know now we're in the future. So, uh, you know, uh, they're probably safer. <laughs> oh, my God. You see them in America. I don't know if this is some weird cultural thing that Simon is totally unaware of. No, no, no. We have those, like, coin-operated things that children ride around with in, in like, uh, shopping centers and stuff. Yeah, for sure. 
Kids love them. I, I, I honestly, I'd never even noticed them until I had kids. And now I'm like, look, you're in a shopping center. You're like actively looking out for them. Where are these things? Let's go. Let's waste some money. Regardless, Anna Maria documentation to back up her claims and the trail once again went cold. Now this brings us to the final theory, one that was brought forward in 2002 when Tom was contacted by a psychiatrist out of Cincinnati. The night before, the psychiatrist had received a phone call from a patient of hers, who the police would only refer to as M. M wanted her doctor to contact the police and tell them that she had information about what happened to Joseph. Since M passed away a couple of years ago without taking her story public, I've opted not to use her real name, as that's clearly not what she wanted. Well done, good stuff. This is what I was talking about. There's no need to, like, dox people for no reason. <laughs> Tom, along with two retired detectives who were close to the case, traveled to Cincinnati, where M would tell the story of her life and the life of Joseph over the course of a three-hour interview. According to M, in 1955, she had accompanied her mother when they picked up Joseph in exchange for an envelope that she assumed contained money. M was 11 years old at the time and claimed to be the frequent victim of physical and sexual abuse from her mother. The mother had allegedly purchased Joseph, who they named Jonathan, for the same purpose. Joseph was allegedly disabled in some way and was unable to speak. He was kept in the basement where he slept in a cardboard box surrounded by coal bins, used a floor drain as a bathroom, and was never allowed to be seen by guests and was the victim of the mother's neglect and repeated abuse. Wait, I, I just went back and had to reread that for a second. She obviously wanted this kid because she went there, picked up the kid, and gave money. So then why would you not care in love for this kid that you... Well, one, it's a kid, and two, you paid for them. You, like, bought them or whatever. I mean, it sounds weird to say, like, bought someone, but, like, as some sort of weird pseudo-adoption. M said that Joseph died after an incident when he was given a bath. He was in the tub and vomited up some baked beans that had been given for dinner. In a fit of rage, M's mother slammed him on the floor, killing him. Um, oh, I'm sorry, I thought kevin wrote accident in the bath it says incident which makes more sense because that is not an accident she hastily cut his hair and then forced m to help her dispose of the body they drove to Susquehanna road to dispose of the body and began to remove joseph from the truck when a potential good samaritan drove up he saw them moving something from the car and acting strangely so he pulled over and asked if they needed help <laughs> so what are you up to i'm just dumping some you know i'm just dumping i'm just like leaving in the woods uh, carry on good day to you sir M kept her back to him and was ordered to stand in front of the license plate to block it from view while her mother convinced the man that there wasn't a problem. After he drove away, the pair disposed of Joseph's body in the woods. They had wrapped him in a blanket, but as for the bassinet box, that was just a piece of trash that they found that someone else had left at the popular dumping ground. In addition to giving alleged details of Joseph's life and death, M provided a lot of details about herself and her family as well. She told police that her mother was a librarian and that her father was a science teacher, told them oh, where she grew up, mentioning spending time at summer camp and so on. Virtually every single thing she told the detectives about her life and her parents' lives can be verified as true, except for the potential abuse and the purchase of Joseph. A psychiatrist corroborated M's story, at least insofar as the fact that M had first told her all of this information back in 1989. She couldn't prove whether any of M's allegations were true, but it meant that this wasn't some new story that she had concocted for attention because the murder had been gaining media traction again. Unfortunately, the doctor did not have any notes that verified M had brought all of this up 13 years earlier. Either they're both lying, or they're both not. So I'm not sure why evidence that they had talked about years earlier was so important to the police but it was yeah it seems a bit weird also it's 13 years ago does psychiatrists keep record that long i kind of hope not in like some sort of privacy thing right you got to get rid of it after a while um 
And also, why would the psychiatrist lie? What's the motivation there? Maybe more information about the case have been released to the public in the time since, but otherwise, I'm unclear why the doctor's notes from 1989 would have mattered. Regardless, Tom said that it was the best lead they had ever had in the case. Everything M said about the case lined up, and her story contained a lot of details that were not public information at the time. The haircut and fingernails were widely known, but the fact that he had been submerged in water at the time of his death and that the autopsy discovered baked beans in his stomach were not. Wow, that is pretty compelling stuff, isn't it? Although this was a really long time ago, so it's always possible that that information has leaked. Like, the longer it becomes from an event and the more people who knew about it, so count the number of people who knew about the baked beans in the stomach, which is probably a good number of police officers, um, and over time that information just becomes more likely to be publicly available, even if it was never explicitly made publicly available. As far as I can tell, the witness testimony from the Good Samaritan was also not publicized, and M's account matched his almost identically. The only difference in his testimony was that he thought it was a mother and a teenage son. M's back was to him, and she was tall and had broad shoulders, and she was bundled up in winter clothing. It would have been easy for him to mistakenly believe she was a boy. Despite Tom believing that it was their best lead ever in the case, police quickly dismissed the story when it came to lie that M had a history of mental illness. Unfortunately, oh, we have no idea what that actually means. Society's attitude toward mental illness is improving, but 20 years ago it was not great. A history of mental illness in 2002 could have easily been something like anxiety, depression, or PTSD. If her story about being sexually abused for her entire childhood was true, then yes, she would have caused her PTSD or some other psychological trauma for which she would have sought treatment. While I can't say for certain what M was suffering from, uh, whatever it was doesn't seem to have been debilitating. She completed high school, an undergraduate degree, a master's degree, and a PhD without taking any breaks, and had a long and highly successful career. With no records of M being institutionalized and no breaks in her education or employment, it seems most likely that whatever mental issues she was suffering from were most likely the same types of issues that most adults deal with at some point. She was just punished with incredulity for having the sense to seek help at a time when it was less socially acceptable to do so yeah it's really nice how far i still don't think it's come nearly far enough but i think society's come a long way in the handling of mental issues in the last 20 years i think we're finally moving to a place where we see them as similar to physical issues and that you can get help for the you know something going wrong in your brain the same way you'd go to the doctor for something wrong with your leg or whatever which i think is really great still a long way to go but a lot of progress has been made that said, uh, we don't know what happens in the sessions between M and her psychiatrist. It's possible that everything M said is absolutely true. It's also possible that the psychiatrist worked with memory regression therapy and inadvertently created false repressed memories in an attempt to help M. Yeah, maybe. Seems unlikely. Also, she knew the specific details about the baked beans and stuff. We have no way to know, but now that new life has been breathed into the case, perhaps police will investigate her story a little more seriously this time. Wrap up. After 65 years, Joseph Augustus Sorelli has his name again, and perhaps he will finally receive a headstone that reflects his true identity. But this was still only half of the mystery. We now know who Joseph is, but we still don't know why he died or at whose hands. Philadelphia's oldest unsolved murder case remains open, but we can remain hopeful that Joseph's identity uh, was the missing piece in proving uh, what happened to him. Since it remains the best theory available, maybe investigators will be able to link the Zarellis to M's family and find evidence that her account, which they already deemed plausible, was in fact accurate. Yeah, I say this is a really solid lead. Go for it, guys. 
or maybe it will show that her story was entirely fabricated and that the guilty party was someone else entirely only time will tell for now let's just remain hopeful that modern dna technology will prevent anyone from needing to be buried without a name but yeah but that's not true <laughs> people as uh, unknown dead people all the time and maybe we'll get there someday with dna technology but there would also be like a pretty 1984 future where everyone's dna is on file and everything like that right i don't know either way it's grim isn't it it's just just, just death isn't it and the next time you get dumped remember that there's no need to be sad because in a roundabout way you may be helping to bring one of america's most famous cold cases to a close and this has been an episode of the casual criminals thank you so much for being here if you enjoyed this episode if you enjoyed this show why not leave it a review oh uh, that's if you're listening if you're watching on youtube this also goes out on a video so you can see me while i read it what fun and also jen the wonderful editor for this adds some like images and stuff to enhance it so if you're listening why not give it a watch uh and if you're watching like subscribe and i'll see you next time Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.